Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to episode 119 of the Flying Free Podcast. Today I have with me Megan. Is it chance I meant to ask you before we recorded? Is it chance? No, I mean, oh. it's, it's chance. It's like oh. chance with a British accent. So, oh, like, I yeah. like that. I like yeah. that a lot. It's Megan Chance. Yes, who, you got it. <laughs> who is the host of the Faith and Feminism podcast. And by the way, if you're not familiar with that one, I highly recommend it. Go grab it. Um, she, your podcast is about the same age as this one. I believe mm-hmm. we started right around the same time. And um, we connected first I, on, on that podcast. I, I think you yeah. inter- interviewed me. Well, I don't think. I, did. <laughs> I think you might have interviewed me. Um, so you interviewed me. And, then, and now I get to interview you. It's super fun. Yeah. Um, Megan is a writer. She's got a brand new book out called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. And she has a passion for empowering women and reclaiming feminism for the Christian faith, which I totally love. And <laughs> in this interview, we're going to find out why this is her passion and how she went from being a normal Christian to being a Christian who actively confronts injustice against women while pointing to a biblical standard for gender equality. So welcome, Megan. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, Like I said, or like Natalie said, uh, I had her on my podcast about two years ago and um, had a lot of good feedback from women. I mean, what you're doing is so important. I hear stories again and again and again, even in my like faith and feminism group, so many women are going through these really messy divorces and they didn't even necessarily realize that they were being abused for so long because of the way that the church had like framed things and it was hard for them to identify. And so I've pointed a lot of people to the resources that you have, and it's so important. And I can think of um, so many women who have been helped through the work that you're doing. So thank you for the work you're doing and thank yeah. you for having me on. Yeah. I'm so glad you could come. Um, I mean, that is kind of the outcome. It's like mm-hmm. the natural outcome of that kind of theology that right. sort of margin- marginalizes women. So I want you to tell us about your new book in just a little bit, but first we would like to hear about the journey that you took that brought you to this place of standing in the gap for half of the human race that's been yeah. marginalized and exploited all throughout history and in every place on the planet. Mm -hmm. So let's start by going back to when you were a missionary who worked with exploited women. Can you tell us about the injustices that you saw? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, you know, uh, started doing missions work after, (laughs) after I grew up in a conservative culture that told me that as a woman, the closest thing I could get to with, with, as, with God is missionary work because I wasn't allowed to preach. I wasn't allowed to teach. So I'm like, okay, this is like the only option left to show how much I love God and serve others. And so I was like, okay, well, as a woman, I have to be a missionary because this is the most holy thing I could do. Or so I thought. 
And so, <laughs> or be a pastor's wife. Yeah, if or you be were a pastor's, pastor's wife, wife. That was like a close second. <laughs> yes, close second. Pastor's wife. Um, for some reason, the the missionary life appealed more to me. Maybe because I realized, or what I was taught about marriage is like, oh, I was my own person until I got married, and then I had to re- defer to my husband and everything, yes. including my relationship with God. You know, this whole spiritual household thing, and so wasn't really mm. ready to give that up quite yet, um, <laughs> or maybe ever. <laughs> So anyways, I got into mission work. I went on a program called the World Race, which is an 11 country, 11 month trip. And um, almost immediately started encountering misogyny and sexism within the church. The first month I was there, um, we encountered a contact who told us that women should be seen but not heard in the church, that women's worship should be inaudible while men's should be audible. And I was like, well, what does that even mean? Because you like, he had people like giving women giving testimony, but there was like just all these rules. And he kept on talking about God's order and how God made uh, women to be subservient to men and that men had to take care of them, almost making them seem like infants that they weren't able to take care of themselves. And and I (laughs) remember, yeah. And so I remember like that sat so wrong with me. And by this point I was 20, I was 23. So I knew enough that what he was saying wasn't okay, but I didn't know how to address it. And so um, after he went on this tirade, a small group of women and I left during the tirade and realized that we weren't alone in realizing what he was saying was extremely harmful. And it was the first time realizing I wasn't alone and that maybe we could do something about it. And so fast forward to a couple of months later, I worked with women who um, I I gave talks to, uh, um, I guess, programs at schools and young girls would come up to me afterwards, specifically in Kenya, um, and tell me and ask me about female circumcision. And I remember being really taken aback when they first asked me that, because um, while I had heard about it in college, we called it female genital mutilation. It was really damaging, really harmful. It wasn't something that I thought I would ever encounter um, or talk to someone who had ever survived it. And yet these young girls were telling me that they were survivors of female, they called it female circumcision, but female genital mutilation. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could tell they were really questioning it and like wanting to push back against it. And I think having, you know, to, to... the opportunity to talk to someone from a different culture and see, hey, is, does this happen over here? Uh, what's happening with us? Is this right? Is it wrong? Kind of thing. And so um, I remember ta- like digging into the recesses of mine. The first time someone asked me it, I just said, no, that's not practiced in the United States. Yet it is actually. Um, there's a famous case in Michigan where they tried to ban it and then the Michigan judge uh, defended it. So I could go more into details, but if you Google it, there is actually some parts of the United States that still practice um, female genital mutilation. It's definitely not as prevalent as um, Africa where I was, but in the special specifically in Kenya where I was, but um, it was really eye opening. And so these girls would talk to me about it. I did some research the next time so I could come prepared and answer their question in a better way and started talking about the harms of how, uh, you know, it takes, it makes sex extremely, um, it takes away all pleasure and it makes it extremely painful. So if people aren't familiar with female genital mutilation, it's where the, either the clitoris or the whole of the external uh, genitalia for girls is removed uh, in an effort to control 
uh, women's sexuality. And so it makes sex extremely painful. It's a procedure that is not done with any scientific or medical training. And it's quite common for girls to bleed to death because there isn't any kind of safe procedure or anything like that happening around it. Um, In addition to that, it makes childbirth more painful. It increases all of these other issues that have to do um, with that region. And so like there's, you know, incontinence, all these other just a host of medical um, issues, not to mention the fact that this procedure happens without any anesthesia while the girls are awake around the ages of 11 and 12. And they're usually held down. What in the world? Yeah. So not only is this extremely physically damaging it's extremely emotionally damaging which makes sense that these these girls were starting to question it and so I went and I asked my contact about it and it turns out that um, in this village all of the girls between the ages of 11 and 13 had endured it and he told me that he used to hide girls who were trying to escape it in his church um, but that it was such a strong tradition that it wasn't changed and it was hard to change. And um, it was just really completely eye-opening to me that this was happening. And at the same time, not only was I hearing stories about female genital mutilation, I was also hearing stories of girls not being allowed to get an education. They would talk to me about how they had to fight so hard for their education uh, while their male counterparts were allowed to go and encouraged her to go to school and how they had all of the chores and their brothers done it. And they would talk to me about even sexual abuse is actually the first time that um, someone told me that they were raped. And it was during this time that I started questioning these teachings of like women, you know, the same kind of teachings that we, I grew up with, like women should be in the home, they should take care of the house and what Mm -hmm. the ramifications were in the society. So in this case, it kept young girls from going to school and made them responsible for all of the, and there was a lot more chores, like getting water. So they would walk miles to get water and all of these other things. And I started to notice a tie to this kind of damaging theology that I had grown up with and had just experienced several months previous and the actual real life ramifications of what that looks like. Yes. And so I continued on and it was month, um, several months later, I was in India working with women who were sex trafficked from Nepal. And so how that works is uh, Nepal is a country that um, there's a lot of poverty there. And so oftentimes people will try to migrate to India in hopes. There's also a lot of poverty in India, but in hopes to uh, get it, get a better life. And so these traffickers will go to these impoverished villages in Nepal and say, hey, um, give me your kid and I will take them to India and get them a good job and send money to home to you. But really they're taking their children and putting them into the slave trade. And so I worked with uh, women who had been trafficked from Nepal and the contact that I worked with there, his name was Aditya. And he started a daycare center for these women. So um, he was a a native and he's from India. The, The city was Navi, Mumbai. And he would, um, yeah, start this daycare because he had a young boy tell him that he used to have to hide under his mother's bed while she was being trafficked. And so while she was with a client, he was hiding underneath the bed. And so it, it helped him realize that these children have nowhere to go. And these, these obviously women don't have a choice because they're being trafficked by pimps. And so um, he started a daycare center and uh, just took care of their kids while these moms, the moms had to uh, deal with clients. And um, while I was there, I met a young girl who was being raised by the pimp who sold her mother. 
Um, she was five years old, malnourished, clearly wasn't cared for. And it turns out that she had a hearing impediment that she couldn't, um, like she could hear if you yelled, but if you talked at a normal volume, she couldn't hear you. And, uh, there was nothing done to help her to communicate. So she was literally, she had no way to communicate with others. And it was, I think that was just the moment of just being, having my heart completely wrecked and broken more so than Mm -hmm. I ever had been before because this young girl was being raised by the pimp who sold her mother and on top of that didn't have a way to communicate and so um I remember talking to our contact about it like the situation that was there and he said that um you know there was nothing we could really do besides like pray and love her and, and take care of her now because if you kidnapped her the like pimps would be violent. The police were bought off by the pimps. It was just a whole corrupt system. Um, but the good news there is that um, Aditya continued to work with uh, this young girl and now she is safe. She has been given, um, he said medicine in her ears, but I'm guessing hearing aids that lost, you know, different languages, um, <laughs> where she's, she's able to hear and is going to school now. And so now he is taking Aww. care of her. But the, the, I think the thing that really broke me that month is just like, it was month after month after month of seeing the oppression and marginalization of women and seeing these similar gender roles I was taught be played out to a much stronger degree, much more powerful degree. And I could really see the effects there. And I decided that um, I wanted to do something about it. And so to bring me to where I am now, I continued to work with this missions organization. We did inner healing retreats for women um, who had come out of the sex trade. And I did that for about, about a year and lived with women specifically in Philippines who had uh, left the sex trade um, or trafficked, less, left being trafficked uh, to get a college education. And it was one night when I was there um, the way that trafficking works there is um, there's these bars and they almost have uh, th- like these women in, in underwear and sometimes they'll have numbers on them, sometimes not. But men watch them like when they're on stage and they point a laser at the girls they want and then that's how they get them for the night. And um, I was there talking um, to a girl. It was her first night there. She was telling me her story. A lot of these women just come from the most just extreme poverty and oppression, but it was her first night there. She had a boyfriend and a child, um, but her boyfriend was extremely abusive. She was showing me where he had like cigarette burns. And she said, I have no way to provide for my child except to do this. Um, And so I was talking to her. And as I was talking to her, these men came up and wanted to buy her. Technically, she should have a choice there, but these guys, these drunk guys weren't taking no for an answer. She was saying no, I was saying no, and then they started grabbing her. And so eventually, I didn't know what else to do. A teammate ran up and like, well, why don't we just buy her first? And so the whole crazy concept of purchasing her, and then they still tried to take her, which led us to get into a fight with these guys, a verbal fight, not a physical altercation with these guys, got the bar managers involved. Um, The whole bar was staring at us and eventually won this argument. But over this period of time, these men got more heated and more heated and more heated. And uh, we won the argument, could prove that we paid for her first. I don't know what the miscommunication was. These, These guys were from South Korea, didn't they didn't speak English, but they were very drunk and very angry. And uh, they just pulled another girl off the stage. 
And I remember her looking back at us and I felt like I had made the situation worse because now not only was, was this woman getting, um, taken by these six men to one girl, these men were now very angry. And some, I had a friend or some, a woman that I worked with in the past that was actually murdered by a client. So I was, it was just devastating because I felt like I had made the situation worse. And it really had me start asking questions. Why is this happening? Like we can help women and that's a noble cause, but why is it that there's so many men willing to buy trafficked women that don't have any other options? Sometimes they're literally like kidnapped, have no other options. Sometimes it's a matter of circumstance that they don't have education. They don't um, have a way to provide their children. And it's like, I either do this to feed my kids or there's no other option. I'm like, what? but why, why, why men? Why are, why are there so much demand? Why, why is this happening? Why aren't we making a difference? Or like, at least it felt like we would help one person when, like I said, in that moment, so easily replaced and uh, really had me start to dive into these, these scripts that we give men and women on how to behave in the world. And the idea uh, that really sent that idea home was the next night I was talking to a man, uh, an American man, he, he called, he called our group over. He's like, why are you here? And we were telling him um, that, you know, we're partnering with a ministry that put girls through college. And he went on like a tirade about how women here were raised right. And they know how to respect men where women in the United States are too uppity and like, don't know their place. And that's when the connection happened for me. I was asking this question, why, why, why? And here was one of many men, because this wasn't the first time I heard it, saying, I come here to get the respect I deserve. I come here to buy and traffic women because they give me the respect that I deserve. And that's when I made the connection, like, this sounds like the pastors I had growing up about how important it was to respect men no matter what. And this, this need for respect, this entitlement for respect. And I saw the fruit of that teaching. And not only had I seen it in the sex trade, I had seen it uh, with these gender roles that I saw in Kenya, where women were like had female genital mutilation and were often sexually and physically abused. I saw it in my own upbringing where I was sexually assaulted and I thought it was my fault because purity culture told me it was my fault. And so um, it was this huge moment of breakthrough that I'm like, the why is these gender roles about men being dominant, listen to them, they need respect. This respect is not a want, it's a need and you have to get it. And if you don't get it, then you're entitled to get it in whatever way. And we see this kind of talking in marriage books, like think of love and respect, you know, yeah. men need respect, women need, you know, women need love. But this whole idea of this, this need for dominance and respect that's prevalent within the church and without the church. And that was my moment of revelation. I'm like, okay, I need to address these power differentials, I need to address these gender roles, which ultimately led me to reclaim feminism for the Christian faith, because I believe Jesus was and is a feminist and talked about equality between the sexes and, uh, and, and, and demonstrated that in the way he interacted with women. And so I think the church for too long has been an upholder of harmful power differentials that prime the ground for abuse, which you're, I'm sure, all too familiar with. But that was my yep. moment of realization is like these these are not just like inconvenient truths that I don't like. These are like damaging, very hurtful, leading to women getting, you know, brutalized and 
in the sex trade and being trafficked because of these power differentials that we see. Right. Yes. I do see the fallout of all of that. It's interesting because what you just described, I was thinking about the difference between hardcore porn and soft porn. Mm -hmm. It's like hard, hardcore misogyny and soft misogyny. Mm -hmm. We sort of peddle a soft misogyny here in, in the, the church over here in America. And they've got the hardcore stuff. Well, we have the hardcore stuff Mm -hmm. here too. Right. But the church doesn't peddle it. The but the church still peddles it. Mm -hmm. It's still the same thing. Mm -hmm. Misogyny. It's, it's still the same underlying things. And we don't, we don't necessarily, we're not selling women to Mm -hmm. strangers, but we're selling them to their husbands and we're saying Mm -hmm. you belong to this man now. And so he gets, he owns you. He, you, he decides, makes all the decisions. He decides if you work or don't work. He decides what you do. If you are going to work, he decides Mm -hmm. when you're going to sleep with him. He decides, and it's okay for him to do that. That's not abusive at all. That's like normal. That's in fact, Mm -hmm. not only normal, it's godly. Yeah. That's a godly thing to do. So, okay. So you, you taught, you, you quit your job eventually. Yes. I quit my job actually right after that night when I had the the probate realization of it. I, especially because the organization that I was working for definitely had some of these uh, patriarchal, (laughs) uh, not good things. And I had confronted it in the organization, but it just really felt time to leave. Um, So yeah, I quit my job three weeks later. Okay. So, I mean, what was, can you give an example of what kinds of things you were seeing? Like maybe give an example of something that you were seeing where you were working that just didn't. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I actually called this out in my organization. So in many ways, like my organization was, they said indeed uh, that, you know, we believe in women's empowerment, empowerment and leadership. And to a degree that was true yet, you know, we would push for women to be in leadership, but that wouldn't change. They wouldn't put women on their board and their senior leadership. And specifically they were doing this whole campaign I talk about this in my book. They were doing this whole campaign about how um, uh, they were training missionaries to look for the man of peace, which was this biblical concept, which is also known as house of peace. And it really is a gender neutral term, but they kept on, and all of, I was in the marketing department and they kept on pushing this word man of peace. And so um, my coworkers confronted it and they, it didn't change. And so I remember talking to my boss and I said, Hey, do you think this language is inclusive? Do, does it include women? Because right now it just seems like men are the only ones that we can steward with the gospel message. And she said, yeah, I pushed back against it, but they didn't listen. So I encourage you to have a conversation with them. And so my opportunity came quickly. There's uh, this whole big meeting they had, uh, like I think it was like once a month where employees were allowed to ask questions of the organization. And as predicted, uh, the senior leadership member was talking about this whole concept of man of peace. And I really leaned over to my boss and I said, is this a time, a good time to ask a question if women are included in this as well? And so she said, this is a perfect opportunity. It was what the meeting was designed for. So I pushed my hand up in the air and I said, does, does this term include women as well? And he got very upset, flew off the handle, started talking about how 
I was accusing him of sexism, how I was like, how could I even ask that question and just went on a tirade and made fun of me and turned my question into a joke in front of this whole meeting, which was probably about 50 or 60 people. Um, and so of course I, you know, sat my seat back down, like, okay, like, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't have asked that question, but I heard people murmuring behind me, Megan, that was a good question. The meeting finished. I had three people immediately rush up to me and said, that was handled so inappropriately. I'm going to be following up with an email and I hope that you do too. And so I followed up with an email. These other people followed up with an email and, um, through a series of conversations, the, the language was changed because the language is important that we use. But even at the end of that, he asked to have a meeting with me and he said that I was wrong because I asked my question out of offense. Um, and so it felt weird because it felt like a victory. Okay, I got them to be more inclusive. But the way the situation was handled, it was like, you never should have spoken up in the first place. And that was just like one of um, several things, but just, to, just this kind of idea of like, we say that we're for women, but when 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 that's questioned or if that's not being shown up and you ask questions about it, we're going to make you an example of how not to behave. Right. Um, and that's that's that was one of the, the reasons I knew it was time to leave. But I, like I said, it was not until I was leading a trip for them and it was like I said, three weeks. I was actually three weeks before I got married. Um, and that push is what really is like, I don't actually think this is where I should be spending my time. I don't feel like I'm being heard here. Um, so I'm going to go and try and get other people to <laughs> reclaim gender or, or gender equity for the church. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, were there other, were there other times then after that, that you were resisting patriarchal teachings in the church and speaking up for women's rights? After What, that? what happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, I heard a podcast called Faith and Feminism. Of course, that got me in so much trouble. Um, <laughs> I, oh my God, I'm serious. Like my, so I- like, like, What does that mean? mean? What does that mean? You got in trouble. What <laughs> oh, happened? Oh, I got ex, oh, okay. I'll tell you. So um, my, I was getting, like I said, I just had gotten married. Um, prior to getting married, my, my in-laws are very conservative and my father-in-law kept on telling me the story about how in his marriage vows, it said that my wife, like Deb, his wife said to obey my husband was in the vows. And his friend came up to him afterwards and said, that's so awesome. How do you get your woman to obey you? And he's like, oh my no, this is a real story. And then he said, <laughs> he said, no, this is just the Christian way. And he told that story to me twice before I got married, but I didn't know how to address it because I wanted him to like me. I'm getting like, I want my in-laws to like me. And sure. so I just wouldn't say anything. And I felt like the first time I didn't respond, that's why he told it the second time. I don't know. But anyways, that, if that gives you a primer of what I was marrying into, <laughs> And so they um, just kind of relentlessly trolled my all of my social media channels. Um, we had to, I actually eventually had to block them. Um, we had to cancel home, like trips home for Thanksgiving. It was actually a very, very painful time in our life. And I think especially for my husband, because my husband obviously is a feminist. I wouldn't have married him if he wasn't, but he wasn't outspoken about it. And so now that I was outspoken, it led them to kind of like 
talk to Dustin, like when I, like they patrol my social media and then they would send an email to Dustin, kind of like get your wife in line. Wow. And, yeah. Oh my gosh. Like they're in control of you got you as yeah, adults. He would, like, Crazy. Reprim- they would reprimand him instead of me. They would reprimand me publicly, but then like send a long email to him. And so that was frustrating to me. I'm like, if talk to me, if you have the problem, but also at the same time, it was like your theology per prohibits you from learning from women. Literally, this is part of your theology. So I don't know why we're having these conversations. Right. Um, so it was really painful for him. We both had Dustin and I, my, my husband had to go to um, therapy, to talk to therapies, uh, therapists, like individually, just about his, obviously he had a great childhood until, until this. And now it felt like he was kind of excommunicated. They told us that we were false teachers. They hinted that we were going to hell all just because we believed in women's equality. Um, And then I had friends who (laughs) told me that they couldn't be associated with me because I would, I was, it would tie them to the liberal agenda. Um, I had one of my very dear friends send me a message saying she couldn't be connected to me on my birthday. Um, uh, So yeah, it cost a lot to speak up. But at the same time, something I have learned so powerfully is like, I'm not concerned about the critics. I'm concerned about who I use my voice for. And it's for, if like, what were the last like four years of missions work? If I didn't, if it didn't change me, if I didn't see um, their stories as something as worthy to fight for. And mm-hmm. if I know what's harming them, how could I just walk away from that and be like, oh, that's fine. Like I'll be comfortable over here and not talk about this. And and not only was it what happened to them, it's what happened to me. It also opened my eyes to all of the abuse and uh, sexual assault and stuff that I had endured, that I was told it was my fault. Um, and so yeah, I've gotten in trouble and I've lost friends and my family has been disappointed in me and uh, the, the list goes on. But at the same time, that's not who I speak for. And I, and I feel so, cl- I still feel so close to God because I truly believe this is God's work. Like this is not something I had an idea about. This is, of course, women's equality matters to God. Of course, right. God cares about women and stories of abuse. Of course, of course, of course. And so I'm just so confident that this is what God has called me to do that even when this does happen, and and that's not to say it doesn't painful. I do cry a lot, Mm -hmm. but I see my therapist, I talk about it and I recover and remember that the why of I tell these stories, where I tell my story, where I tell these stories, because it it has an effect, honestly, like what we believe about our, our gender roles really does have profound effects, not only here, but around the world. It does. When I, I, I can, I totally relate to the idea, the feeling that I feel like I'm aligned with God, the heart right. of the love of God now in a way that I wasn't before when I was buying into and catering to all of the really, it's, it's really hateful underneath mm-hmm. all of it. Right. I mean, it's got a nice little pink bow on the top, mm-hmm. um, some frosting on it, but it's really, it's not cake underneath there. It's a pile of poo, you know? Right. And so, once you see that, the loving thing to do is to say, this is not like, I don't want anyone to eat this. This mm-hmm. is not healthy. Let's, let's go for the real thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, now my audience is they're women of faith mm-hmm. and they love Jesus with all their hearts. And they are, a lot of them are in marriages that are um, like my former marriage was, it's a complementarian marriage mm-hmm. and they come from that kind of theology 
And um, one of the things that I noticed when I was getting out of my former marriage and, and, and I ended up getting remarried, um, and we do not have a complementarian second, I don't have a complementarian second marriage, um, thank goodness. But even the, 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 the marriages that I noticed that were actually pretty healthy in the complementarian church that I went to, they actually didn't function where the guy was the one ruling the roost and making all the decisions and, and treating his wife like crap. They actually functioned more like an egalitarian marriage. They were like, they were partners. They were a team, a team. And when I would look at marriages like that in my former marriage, I would think, I wish my marriage could be like that. And I didn't know at the time that what I was, but those women in those marriages would say, oh, this is a true complementarian marriage. I am very submissive to my husband. I do whatever he tells me to do. But at a functional level, that wasn't actually what was going on. But all the rest of us that were in abusive marriages, we were looking at that going, well, I do that too, but my marriage looks nothing like that. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, I'm assuming your marriage is not complementarian. No. So what, no. what do you say when people ask you, you know, how, did, how, how is your marriage functioning when you don't have someone to make the decisions for you? Yeah. I, so it's funny, like now, like with a podcast, faith and feminism, I don't get that question as much. Um, but do they leave you alone now? They're like, Oh, we can't touch her now. She's like a totally off the deep end. Yeah. I'm like, she's a lost cause. Yeah. Um, no. So I, it's funny. So I wrote the book I wrote, um, they sent my, I guess my book to beta readers, I guess is what you would call it. They sent it to three different demographics of, of, I guess, women in different different demographics. And it was very clear that they sent my book to a complementarian, a woman in a complementarian marriage. And something she asked is like, but like, because I wrote a chapter on marriage, but she's like, but how does your marriage function? You know, or actually I hadn't written a chapter on marriage yet. And then I added that afterwards because she's like, I don't understand how this works. Um, so it's actually really simple. I think we've been taught a bunch of formulas, which aren't really helpful. And also formulas don't work like with people. They don't really work. Um, I think I obviously I live in an egalitarian marriage, but I think it's really, really simple. We talk to each other and we listen to each other and we empower one another. And so mm. uh, a kind of an example or the example I use in my book is I, I knew I needed to quit my job um, after that night uh, that I described to you earlier. And instead of my husband being like, Oh no, you to submit and earn money. Or I don't know. It wasn't like, he just empowered me. He's like, you know what, Megan, you're right. This is something that needs to be addressed. Go for it. And so after we got married, he was a chemical, he's a chemical engineer. He was a chemical engineer and he hated his job. He worked in a factory and, uh, the way he was raised is like, you kind of just do this. This is what you do to earn money. And my role as a man is to earn money and, and I'll do this terrible job, even though I hate it every day. And I was like, you don't, you know, you don't have to do this job. Like we can, we can survive without it. And so I encouraged him to, you know, quit his, his uh, chemical engineering job and go back to coding school, computer programming school. And now we both work from home and he's a coder and he loves it. And I think that's just a small illustration of like, just listen to one another support each other in the best way you know how it's not like oh you're the man you have to keep on providing for the family and I'm the wife so I need to you know immediately have a bunch of children and cook dinner and clean the house all the like like that was not it it's just allowing us to function in our giftings and when it comes to household duties we split it up according to our giftings and so 
Who's nice. mowing the lawn? Who's like doing all of the yard work? That's me because I like it and I enjoy it. He is not doing that work because he has allergies and we mm. live in Georgia. And so he goes out there and works on the lawn or in the garden and he's covered in hives and I enjoy it. And so he actually always is emptying the dishwasher and cooking. So like, it's just an example of like, play to your gifts. I hate emptying the dishwasher. And so he does that for me. And <laughs> that is awesome. I, I love, gar- I love gardening. I love yard work. I like mowing the lawn. I, you know, I have a Apple watch and I have a move goal. I'm trying to burn 500 calories every day. And so I'm like, yeah, I want to mow the lawn. It's like another opportunity. to Right. Exactly. Um, so I think this, the, the answer is just talk and listen to each other and try and empower and support one another in the best way possible. I've only been married for four years now, but that's worked really great for us. And we both work from home. And so it's not even like, I mean, whatever we're doing is working because we, we're with each other 24 seven and we still love each other and yeah. love spending time with each other and even miss each other. <laughs> Oh, that is so Um, awesome. And I hope that gives listeners hope for, because I know a lot of my listeners are either separated or they're getting, Mm -hmm. they're in the process of getting divorced and they wonder, you know, is there any, are there healthy relationships out there? Can I, is that something that could be a reality for me? And I want them to know that that is definitely a reality out there. Not all men have that kind of theology that... (laughs) That believes those harmful things against women. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So to wrap up, let's talk about your book just a little bit here. So your new, now what did it, is it released? This is going to air in the future, but when is, when is the release date? May 11th. May 11th. Okay. So this will be out by that time. Um, Tell us about why you wrote that book and what you're hoping that it will do in the world. Yeah. So I, I, it's funny. So when I first had this idea to write a book, I really was gung ho about writing a memoir because I really wanted people to identify. I wanted them to see themselves in my story. And I think what I found over and over and over again is that when we have conversations, when we tell our stories, we are so much less alone than we think we are. And a lot of the things that were harmful to us and we are told we're good, were actually harmful to others. And they were questioning it, but they just felt like they couldn't talk about it. Um, and so I remember when I was pitching it to the publisher, they're like, well, memoir doesn't really sell as well as nonfiction books. So I want you to consider that. I'm like, okay, well, I have this first draft of a memoir. A very rough, is terrible, is not good. Very rough first draft of a memoir. Can you read it and let me know what you think? Because I feel pretty strongly about the memoir. And they read it and they're like, yeah, you do. (laughs) We'll do the memoir. Awesome. Yeah. So the reason I wrote it as a memoir is because I think the listeners, especially you've already described your audience. I think they're going to read this story and they're going to see themselves in it again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my hope is that I, I don't, I think so often we don't think what the bad stuff that happens to us, we think it's just us. We don't realize that there's so many other people, but we also don't realize that the bad stuff that happens to us happens to women around the globe uh, to differing extremes, right? But, but yeah. it's the same root cause. And so my the reason I wanted to tell it as a memoir is I want you to see my story. I want you to identify with it, but I also want you to know at the end of it that you do have a voice and this is how you can come through that, that out of like out of it. And that this is why the theology is damaging and a firsthand account, but this is how we can come out of it. And one of my favorite, you know, 
teachings from the Bible is talking about, we know a fruit by its, uh, or I know a tree by its fruit. And the question I'm asking is what kind of fruit does this gen- biblical gender role theology produce? And it's very, very clear, not only for your listeners, but around the world, this kind of theology is producing rotten, damaging, toxic fruit. Yep. And so if, if we're taking the Bible seriously in that way, then we know that we have to confront these teachings or thing or abuse is just going to keep on happening in the church and not just in the church, but we're going to be complicit in the abuse that happens elsewhere. Um, like I said, a lot of these ideas are exported, like but a lot of these women who are trafficked are being purchased by Western American men with these ideals. Wow. Um, so I want them to see themselves in the story. I want them to find the courage to confront these gender roles. And, and if they, if they haven't already started questioning it and I want them to know that they're not alone, I want them to feel seen and heard and also empowered to do something. And so that's my hope with it. Yeah. I love that. I I love the name of it too. Women rising. I'm all about the flying. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, okay. So can they get it on Amazon or or you get you sent me yeah. a link, an early link, but it was mm-hmm. not on Amazon. So I just want to make sure yeah. they can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, I, my publisher is InterVarsity Press, which is a Christian publisher. So you can find them as well there. Um, if it's you can pre-order on Amazon. So if this is getting released before May 11th, please, please, please pre-order it. That would help me so much. Um, but yeah, you can do it on Amazon or InterVarsity Press. You, if you just search women rising and my name, you'll find the book. Okay, great. So, and I will, for those of you who are listening um, or even on YouTube, I will have the links in the show notes. If you go to flyingfreenow.com forward slash one, one, nine, that's the number of this episode. So flyingfreenow.com forward slash one, one, nine. I will link to Megan's podcast. We'll link to her website. We'll link to her books and any, any other um, helps that she has for you guys. And you guys can get to know Megan a little bit better. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to talk to you and hear your story and get to know you a little bit. And for those of you who are listening, thanks for listening. Until next time, fly free.